Hey everybody, it's 2018 and the start of a brand new year. So let's get started here on Everyday Geo. Hey folks, it's JB and I'm your host for this episode. We have just put a rather interesting year behind us where we saw all sorts of craziness going on from the political spectrum, science and the climate, the technology industry, the stock market, and of course the geospatial industry. Now, of course, some of the crazy will probably carry over into 2018, but we have a fresh new year ahead of us as, ge as users of geospatial technology, which will be interesting to say the least. So with the start of a new year, I thought of trying different things to help make the Everyday Geo website and podcast better and something of interest for that everyday geospatial user out there. In most of my podcasts, I ask guests if they've had a chance to read different geospatial blogs out there, or listen to podcasts, or read any geospatial articles to help them stay abreast in the industry and technology. Most try to catch up on new information from watching recorded webinars, and, and some try to use Twitter to stay caught up on, on new things. However, there's, there's a lot that goes on with Twitter, and the more people you follow, the more you may miss. The same thing with all the different geospatial news sources out there, or other articles in print or on the web that discuss geospatial issues or interesting geospatial stories. So here in 2018, I'm starting a new segment, which I'm calling JB's Bits and Bobs. I have no guests to interview, and these segments are just going to be a random assortment or bits and bobs of geospatial news or stories that I come across, either from Twitter, LinkedIn, maybe another geospatial podcast, or for some of the geospatial publications out there. And I'm going to have to credit Miss Jenny Williams for the name of this new segment, since she said it a few times in her Everyday Geo segment last December. Wasn't really sh exactly sure what bits and bobs meant, but after looking it up, it seems just as good a term to use as I would mishmash, hodgepodge, or even odds and ends. Now, while I can't cover all the stuff that's out there on the web, <laughs> no way, I can discuss some articles I find out there that I think are interesting and may be of interest to some of you. All the articles I bring and discuss will be credited and referenced on the podcast page itself for you to click on and find out more if you want. Some of the articles, well, no, pretty much all the articles, will be my take as a user or fan or advocate of geospatial technology, and that take may either be good, bad, or even downright ugly. So if you have a comment about anything I discuss, well, there is a comment section on the podcast page that you can use to give me your two cents. So we're going to start off with an article from Business Insider, authored by Rob Price. Now this article was titled, Mapping Apps Are Reportedly Directing People Fleeing the Southern California Wildfires to Areas That Are on Fire. Now, this article highlights the recent fires that we saw last year, late last year, in California, and some pretty serious issues when it comes to the mapping apps that we rely on and use on our smartphones and tablets. Navigation apps such as Waze and Google Maps and, and others 
are great at telling us how to get from point A to B. They can even reroute us on traffic, depending on how it's flowing, if there's a traffic jam ahead. It allows us to arrive at our destination pretty much on time or close on time, and usually safely. However, these apps really don't take into consideration Mother Nature. <laughs> and Mother Nature can be finicky. The natural environment has a fluidity that tends to change and can change radically at any given time, which we saw in the case of the California fire. Navigation maps were in some cases actually directing drivers into fire-infected zones because there was less traffic in those areas since they'd been evacuated. These apps do not calculate that the reason these areas are free of traffic is because the area itself is dangerous to be in. It was at one point the LAPD had to even issue warnings for people in the area to stop using these apps and to listen to radio or other media for safer evacuation routes. So of course I'm going to have an opinion and, and you know we do need to get some work done to somehow update these apps in near real time, since people are relying on the navigation maps uh, more and more on their portable devices. So, I mean, can you imagine trying to flee a disaster such as the California fires, and, and the next thing you know, your, your app has taken you directly into the bowels of hell itself? And a good example of that, it was an amazing video that I saw. It was pretty surreal, it was a car was filming while driving on the interstate and it was approaching an area where the entire hillside in front of and to the left of the vehicle was ablaze, glowing in the darkness of the smoke given off by the fire. It was frightful but amazingly beautiful at the same time. And not just fires, what about flooding? Like in Houston or other places where we see flash floods. Can you imagine trying to flee an area flooding and following the direction on your app, and the app doesn't take into consideration that the road a mile up ahead is washed out or underwater, and when you get to it and you turn around, you start to head back, and the way you came back is now flooding, and you wind up trapped? These can be dangerous situations. But, you know, in situations like this, people really should use some common sense and listen to their local authorities or agencies radio and TV before venturing out, but we know there are plenty of Darwin Award winners out there that don't have common sense. Now at the same time, maybe Waze, Google, and Apple, and, and other mapping app companies should look at how users of their apps can get better realistic and near real-time information, which I do believe will happen as we move more and more to autonomous vehicles. These autonomous vehicles cannot just solely rely on general road maps fed into its computer. These cars will need to rely on mapping information combined with information that it processes from its own onboard sensors. And these onboard sensors will need to feed the relevant information back to its main navigation hub, maybe somewhere in the cloud where maps and other relevant information can be updated and distributed to other drivers in the area, in real time or near real time. But that's going to be a while before that fully takes shape. So remember, in times of natural or man-made 
situations, uh, your mapping app might not be the best thing to use to get you out of harm's way. Not yet. Now, another website, GIS Gig, they put on their site GeoJobs, UAV, and Commercial Drone Industry Outlook predictions for 2018. Now, like everybody else, GeoJobs expects the sales of drones to continue to increase in 2018 and in all three segments of the industry consumer drones, commercial or enterprise drones, and government drones. They're also predicting some cleaner distinctions from the FAA between the classes that small unmanned aerial vehicles are put in, such as further defining what Party 107 pilots can do and what just strict recreational drone users can do. They also predict about the standardization of state and local UAS regulations or restrictions, which I hope comes sooner rather than later, but when you're talking standards, it seems those take years to come up with, and this can be seen in organizations like the Open Geospatial Consortium. Now, standards are great. We all need to adhere to them, but it does take, it seems, a quite a long time to for everybody to agree on one thing. Now, they also predict an increase in demand for UAV providers, and I can see this as well. More and more people are doing are using drones to collect data. And I believe in that demand that so much that I have downloaded my own copy of FAA-G-8082-22. Otherwise known as the Remote Pilot Small Unmanned Aircraft System Study Guide from the FAA. And I'm going to use that to study up so I can get my Party 107 card from the FAA. GeoJobs also has a few more predictions out there on their, on their site as well concerning GPS, the use of RTK with drones, and more. So make sure to check it out if you're interested in drones and drone, or a drone pilot and see if you agree with them or not. Next is an article from probably one of my favorite magazines out there, National Geographic. They make beautiful maps and have fantastic stories. And this is uh, the case as well with this story by Greg Miller. Bizarre, enormous 16th century map assembled for first time. And when we say enormous, we are talking pretty big for 1587, which is the year the map was finished. The map, which is about 430 years old, is composed of 60 individual sheets that were bound together in an atlas. And then these individual sheets were finally put together into one large digital 9 foot by 9 foot map of the world by the David Rumsey Map Center at Stanford University. Now, as maps go from that era, era this one is no different, and it's packed with magical creatures such as mermen, mermaids, unicorns, and other creatures in areas of dead space such as oceans and deserts. The man behind the map, Urbano Monte, was a pretty unique individual himself. Not a whole lot is known about the man, but it seems he was, as the article states, quite geo-savvy for his days. It seems the projection of the map used to flatten the globe is what modern cartographers call a polar azimuth projection, where the North Pole is at the center of the map and longitude radiating outward from there. 
It was a pretty strange prediction to be used in that time period. However, it actually became popular after air travel became prominent in the 20th century and navigators needed to arc up and over the Arctic, which was sometimes the shortest route between point A and B. Now, the center purchased the Alice of Maps last September and scanned each page to stitch together, and to their surprise, the individual pieces almost fit together perfectly, which leads one to believe that that's what Monte intended from the very beginning. And you can check them out for yourself. All the sheets, as well as the composite, are now available online. And you can even download a KMZ file for display inside of Google Earth. Next is a article by Michael Miller, and it's titled, Why QGIS Should Be Part of Everyone's GIS Toolbox. Now, I stumbled across the blog site run by Michael Miller and Miller Mountain LLC, and I have to admit, it's pretty good, especially if you're wanting to learn more about open source like QGIS. In this blog post, he makes a very good case for what I have believed in for a long, long time. You need more than one tool in your GIS toolbox. And in this case, his tool of choice is QGIS. Now, I used to use ArcGIS for years in school, where I also had access to Erdos Imagine, Grass, Idrissi, and even a package, I wonder if anybody out there remembers, Atlas GIS. So it is good to have multiple tools that you can use in your everyday workday to help you get the job done quicker. And there is a good segment within his article that explains exactly what open source really is and how it differentiates from what many may remember as freeware or shareware. Programs that you were allowed to use for free for some functions, but then had to purchase a full version to get the most out of the software. Free or shareware software was developed to lure users in and try to milk them for lack of a better term on my end, out of money. Open source is not that, and Mr. Miller does a good job explaining that. Now, a good bit of the article also covers how QGIS is better than ArcGIS for some things, like multi-user editing, and how ArcGIS is better than QGIS for other things, like handling some large geoprocessing operations. Regardless, the article is definitely worth a read. I'm hearing more and more how QGIS is being deployed in larger organizations to help offset the cost of ArcGIS. Now, they're not getting rid of ArcGIS, but for some lower-level analysis by users that are not hardcore geospatial specialists, well, QGIS is a much cheaper solution than purchasing additional $1,000-plus licenses. Mr. Miller also creates training courses in open-source technology. And I'm going to plug one of his courses right now because I just bought it on Udemy. I got his introduction to QGIS 3.0, and I'm looking forward to working through it. Moving on to the next article I found on the GIS Lounge website by Rebecca Maxwell, titled Map Traps, Intentional Mapping Errors to Combat Plagiarism. Now, plagiarism, it's been a global problem that's been around for a long, long time. And if you don't understand what it is, it's just simply the copying of another's work as your own. And to combat plagiarism, 
Many companies or individuals would intentionally create fake entities in their material. For example, some encyclopedia and dictionary companies would insert a completely made-up word or item. And later on, when another company put out their new product and that product contained the same fake word or identity, boom, busted. You just caught them plagiarizing from your source. Now, this intentional introduction of false or fake entries was also, and may probably still be, prevalent in the mapping industry. Map makers and map companies go through a lot of hard work when producing a map. Checking the spelling of cities and towns and streets, proper placing of buildings as well as other information contained on the map, so of course they want to protect that work from folks that would just copy it and make money off the backs of others. Hence, the introduction of trapped streets and even fake towns. For instance, it seems up until the 80s, Rand McNally had a trapped street called Lataz Drive in Upland, California, a completely made-up name. Mapmakers could also misrepresent a street, such as a main artery, actually depicted on the map as a side street or something along those lines. There was even a nice lawsuit in which Ordnance Survey of Great Britain was paid 20 million pounds by the Automobile Association because Ordnance Survey was able to prove their maps had been copied. But how? Well, they had embedded fingerprints or small deliberate errors into its maps that somehow made it in the maps that the Automobile Association produced and eventually had to admit to copying the maps in a total of 64 British towns and cities for use in their travel guides. Now this article that Miss Maxwell wrote really came into being from another article which is just as interesting. And this article is by Robert Coolwick of NPR titled, An Imaginary Town Becomes Real, Then Not. True Story. So, in this article, an entire town called Aglo, and that's spelled A-G-L-O-E, was created along a dirt road in the state of New York by Otto G. Lindbergh and Ernest Alpers of the General Drafting Company in the 1930s. The name Aglo was a mix of their initials, O-G-L and EA. A few years later, a famous map company known as Rand McNally released a map of New York State, and guess what? Yep, Aglo was there, and the original map makers from the General Drafting Company were like, Aha, we got you. And Rand McNally said, Nope, you didn't. And they proceeded to prove it. It seems that Rand McNally designers went to the official map of the county and checked out the coordinates for this supposed town called Aglo. And when they went there, they found a building on that dirt road. And what was the name of that building? Well, it was the Aglo General Store. How in the heck can there be an Aglo General Store if Aglo was a made-up town in the first place? Well, it seems that the owners of the Aglo General Store, when they were looking for a name to call the store they were building on that there dirt road, 
had seen the town's name on a map that was distributed by the area's Esso gas stations. And if you don't know what Esso is, Esso is now part of the Exxon Mobil family. Just a quick FYI there. So, where did Esso purchase the maps used by the folks who named their business the Aglo General Store? You guessed it, from Lindbergh and Alpers in the General Drafting Company. And as such, a made-up name of a made-up place created, for a time, a real place that existed. And like that, Rand McNally was found not guilty. But of course, after they're found not guilty, the store closes, and it hasn't been there for decades. And during that time, Mr. Lindbergh and Alpers, as well as the General Drafting Company itself, faded away. And some of the maps produced, such as the state maps they created, was absorbed into the American Map Company in 1992, along with the tiny town of Aglo. And so, that information carried over, with the advent of Google, into Google Maps. There was, one time, even a Street View in entry for Aglo. <laughs> Eighty years later, and the fake town of Aglo persisted. However, in 2014, after this article from NPR was published, it seems Google has taken it down from Google Maps. But, if you go to Bing Maps, you can still find it. It's just north of Roscoe, New York, just past the Twin Village Golf Club. Now, Bing does denote that Aglo is a fictional hamlet, and with a much more simple explanation about the town than what I described here. But... Cheers to Bing for preserving something that lasted for over 80 years. Next is an article from Geo Awesomeness by Ishvina Singh on how a fake map of America almost fetched Christie's $1.2 million. Now there are a lot of folks and people out there that dream or fantasize about finding lost treasure. There are folks that scrounge flea markets or estate sales looking for that hidden gem. I've been guilty of it. Or maybe there is a hidden gem worth a lot of money that has been stashed away in a relative's attic just waiting for you to discover it. Well, this was the case a few months ago when a man claiming to be a relative of Arthur, Arthur Bruno Drescher wandered into the famed Christie's of London auction house. Now, who is Arthur Bruno Drescher? He's just a paper restorer. That worked in the restoration of very valuable documents. In his case, he was deployed at the Ashwin, which is the University of Oxford's Museum of Art and Archaeology, which was founded back in 1683 and is known for its world-famous collections. So he had access to a lot of historical artifacts. So why is this significant? Well... This relative brought in a copy of a 510-year-old map made by German cartographer Martin Waldseemuller's Globe Gores. Now, if you're not familiar with what the term Gores is, in this case, it's a flattened globe where you have a sector of a curved surface which lies between two close lines of longitude. Now, this helps a user place the globe on a planar surface with little distortion and you can read up all you want about gore segments on Wikipedia. But this particular globe gore by Waltzemuller 
is distinct from many others because it's believed, or is, the first globe of the world to use the name America to denote the New World, and as such is a very desired collectible. Well, how desired? The Bavarian State Library purchased another copy of the map in 1991 from the estate of a collector that passed away for a cool $1.2 million. Now, originally, only around a thousand copies of this map were thought to have been produced for a geography book. But after a few hundred years, well, only a handful had survived in their original paper form. Many of the others were cut out and placed on globes, as was their original intention. And these globes with the map were probably destroyed by kids playing ball or, or chewed up by a family pet. So when a nice copy shows up out of nowhere for some folks, it's like winning the lottery. In this case, Christie's decided to quickly put the map up for sale with an estimated value between 800000 and $1.2 million. However, some things are not always how they seem, which was true in this case. A group of rare map dealers and paper restorers came forward with the suggestion that the map was really a forgery. Now, this will get this is something that will get your attention real quick if you're trying to sell something for 1.2 million dollars and that was the case with Christie's so working with the various experts some serious irregularities were pointed out on the map areas in the map had etchings that differed from other known verified maps and some areas were even missing there were remnants of glue below the print, suggesting that the image was printed on the paper after it was torn off from a book. And then the most damaging evidence itself was in the form of a white line on the map. And this white line was exactly in the same place where another map, owned by the James Ford Bell Library at the University of Minnesota, they repaired their map by adding extra paper to their copy. And that extra paper, that line from the extra paper, found its way on to this map as well. So how could a tear from the repair of one map also be present in another so-called original map? So, with these revelations, of course, Christie's called off their auction, which was to be held last month in December. The kicker is that during this investigation, with the authentic map at the Bell Library, it was discovered that the map in the Bavarian State Library, you know, you remember them? They paid $1.2 million for their copy? <laughs> well, it seems that map also has the same white line. Now they have to go back and review the authenticity of its map. There you have it. It goes to show you Map traps, fake towns, and even forged historical maps can be costly. So the next time you look at a map and something just doesn't seem right, don't be surprised if it's not. And the last article I want to talk about real quick before we wrap up, I found on Directions Mag Online by Diana Hinton. And that one titled, Will the Real GIS Please Stand Up? 
You know, for me, it's a safe assumption to say that 98% of folks listening to this podcast know what the term GIS is, right? Of course, it's the acronym for the Green Iguana Society. What? You, you didn't know that? You really thought it stood for Geographic Information Systems? Well, yes, it, it does mean that, but it seems the acronym GIS is used by more than just us geospatial folks. Mrs. Sinton's article covers some of the work that she did, went and did, at looking at who else in the world uses GIS, and it's just not spatial. If you like stock trading, you know, you can even buy a thousand shares in GIS, which happens to be the ticker symbol on the New York Stock Exchange for General Mills, Inc. But be careful. If you accidentally put in an order for a thousand shares of GPS, <laughs> you'll get that too. A thousand shares of Gap Incorporated. So check out her article for more companies and groups and agencies that are known as GIS. So that wraps up the articles for this podcast. More will follow, and I hope you find them as interesting and entertaining as I do. I'm still looking for folks who'd like to come on the podcast and share their story, how they got started, what they have enjoyed working on, and what they're working on now or maybe some other topics that we can discuss. I want to start off 2018 by thanking the employers of some folks that I've talked to, or that I have talked to, that have allowed their folks to share their stories, like the Arkansas Highway Department, or RDOT, BNSF Railroad, Kew Gardens in the UK, and the city of Edmonton. Thank you very much for you have some great users working for you. And for those who wouldn't let your folks come on, that's fine. I wish you would reconsider. I don't want to know the specifics about your company's software or workflows. I just want to know about some of the great people that you have working for you. Also, with the new year, I'm interested in talking to some of the smaller geospatial shops out there. Surveyors, mapping groups, and others. And when I say small, I mean like maybe 15 or less employees. Those places that don't have a marketing department or staff. Now, I want to share with others what you're about, how you got started, what projects you're working on, and what services you offer. So, if you fit, if you fit this category, just send me an email at jbgo at everydaygeo.com and let's talk. So, that wraps up this episode, this very first episode of 2018 of Everyday Geo. I hope you found it entertaining, and I hope you keep coming back and listening to other tidbits or bits and bops that I want to share, as well as listen to some of the great people that want to share their story on this site. So until next time, have a great day.